You're listening to Away With Words. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. You know, Martha, ever since Barack Obama appeared on the national political scene as a candidate, people have been coining words off of his name. We talked about this on a past show, if you remember. Right. And it doesn't seem to have an end. They keep going. There are so many of these, in fact, that the online magazine Slate published a book called Obama Mania, the English Language Barackified. And there's a ton of stuff in there. It's an outgrowth of an article that they ran on their website and a little web application that they built that featured some of this language. And, you know, I'm involved with an organization called American Dialect Society, and every year at about this time, we do our Word of the Year vote. So I've been taking nominations from the general public for several months now of terms um, that people think are important to the year 2008, what typifies 2008. And it's interesting to see that near the top of the list, one in five terms are forms of Barack Obama's name. One in five? More than 20%. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a big amount. I mean, more than half overall are related to the election. So yeah. the election was very important. Of course, financial terms are also way up there near the top of the list. But one little interesting fact that I'll share with you before we go to calls is that there are two forms of Barack Obama's name that are very similar, uh, but they differ in their meaning and the people who nominate them. And they are Obamination and Obamination. So... O-B-A-M-I-N-A-T-I-O-N and O-B-A-M-A-N-A-T-I-O-N. The first one, in a playoff of the word abomination, is negative and tends to be nominated by people who did not or do not support Barack Obama. The second one, a playoff of the two-word Obama-nation, is generally nominated by people who have supported Barack Obama and uh, continue to support him. And these two camps in pretty much equal numbers have nominated these two very similar forms of the word. Don't you think that's interesting? <laughs> I think it's, it's hilarious. The, it's interesting to me, too, that the, <laughs> the camp that nominates Obama nation as a positive term, you know, a nation of Obama supporters, I guess is how, how you might phrase it. They don't have a problem with the fact that it sounds like abomination. And then the negative camp pretty much almost always says something in their emails like, well, of course, no explanation is required. You know, they'll just list the word and say, need I say more or enough said, something like that. Because they just automatically believe that I'm going to understand that it's directly related to the word abomination, a negative term. That's great. So maybe he really will bring people together. They'll all think they're saying the same thing. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> Well, there'll be no end to it. I expect four more years of these kind of coinages at least. And in the meantime, if you have a question about language, give us a call. The number is 1-877-929-9673. That's 1-877-W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Karen from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Karen. How are you? Hi, Karen. Pretty good. What's up? Well, I looked up a word, uh, an expression, and it uh, it sounds kind of maybe plausible, but awfully precarious. Uh, the way the the expression developed is the expression is eavesdropping, and uh, the explanation given on one side is that eaves were big enough to climb up on and find out what was going on inside. It seems like an awfully precarious thing. I can imagine a lot of people coming to unfortunate circumstances uh, as a result of their curiosity. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're making some assumptions about architecture, aren't they? Yeah, yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, so the site, you said that people actually climbed up on the eaves of the house, and that's the, this, the slanted part of the roof, right? Right, right. And I, I, don't, know if, I don't know if I buy that or not. Don't buy, don't buy. No, no, no. <laughs> sell, sell. <laughs> 
Yes, your suspicions are well placed. It doesn't refer to climbing up on a roof, but it refers to that space underneath the roof. You know how a roof projects out over the house? Sure. And that's the eave, right? Mm-hmm. And the word eave, E-A-V-E, comes from probably the same family of words as over. So it's the part that projects over the edge of the house. And within mm-hmm. that space, Karen, there's a place where you can stand. And on the e- ground, though, mind right, you, right? Right, yeah. on, uh, the ground, on the ground, okay. under the eave. And the progression was that originally the word eavesdrop or eavesdrip meant the dripping of water off of the eave. And then it meant that area down under where the water dripped, and then it came to refer to standing there in that space to, as you said, listen to somebody. Because the key here is to remember that this word dates to a period when multi-story buildings were not common. Right. So the eave wasn't 20 or 30 feet up above your head. You you Uh maybe even could jump up and hit it. With your hand. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, so when you're standing under the eave, your back is against the house, and anyone in the house can't see you out the door or out the window unless they step out of the house. So you could be right by a window. You could be right by a door listening to what's going on inside. Uh-huh. So that's a lot easier to picture, isn't it, Karen? Oh, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, eavesdropping does not come from spies and ninjas falling from the, the thatched roofs of old, <laughs> old cottages or anything like that. <laughs> Wonderful images. <laughs> yeah, it's a great picture. <laughs> but it's pretty simple. The simple explanation is the, is the right one here. All right. Does that help? Uh, sure. All Super. Right. Glad to hear it. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks you, Karen. Thanks. Right. Bye-bye. If you've got some fun with language that you'd like to share with us, the number to call is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. That's one eight seven seven wayward We'd love to listen in, or you can always email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi, this is Brent from Indianapolis. Hello, Brent. How are you? Hi, Brent. I'm fine. How are you? Doing well. What's up? Well, before I tackle the problem of the National Football League and most of the sports commentators in the country uh, misusing a little word, I wanted to be sure that I've got the correct understanding of that word, and the the word is buy. And I think the evolution of uh, its misuse began when the National Football League took their 16-game schedule into a 17-week time span so that every team had a week off. But taking a week off, I don't know, perhaps just didn't have the, sounded too pedestrian or lacked a sort of formal description. So that week off pretty soon became an off week. Mm-hmm. And then the off week perhaps begged the question of whether the team didn't play or just didn't play well, like they had an off week. So eventually it became known as the bye week. But I think that the actual meaning of the word bye in that context is uh, the position of one who draws an opponent or no opponent for a round in a tournament, and so you advance to the next round. Not simply that you don't play, but that you're not scheduled to play in a tournament. So I just wondered if that is the correct meaning of buy, and if it is, how did it? Uh, how did that word ever originate? Well, well, both both are good, Brent. That's the that's the short story there. Both uses of buy fall very neatly under the larger meaning of buy, which is something that is off of the main way or action or is secondary or unimportant. You'll find this by in expressions like um, a by-election, 
which is an election, say, in an off year when you ordinarily wouldn't have one. So you have to fill a, a seat that's suddenly been vacated or you'll find it in a lay-by. Do you know what a lay-by is? Yes, uh-huh. Oh, sure. This What's is, a lay-by? It's the place on the side of the road where you can pull off your car out of the main road or out of the main traffic. Oh. Um, railroads have them as well. Um, by the by is the same story. It's, it means in, incidentally or by way of a digression. It's, it's about something that's secondary or um, is supplemental to the main action. And I think both of these buys that you're talking about in the NFL, both by week, which is this is a week that you don't have a game, Right. Right. And the the buy, which is a noun form, which is the it, – it's kind of like you're automatically granted a spot even though you didn't earn it through winning a competition, right? Yes. Well, you're, you're actually scheduled not to have an opponent for that round. That's right. You're, right. You're taking the secondary route. Think of it that way. You're taking the alternate path. Um, and again, buy is a very all-encompassing word, B-Y or B-Y-E, as an adjective mm-hmm. or a noun. Um, serves a great number of purposes, and I think both of these fall very neatly under there. I wouldn't blame the NFL for this either. Um, similar terms exist in golf and cricket, and I think you'll find that uh, this buy term has existed long before the NFL came along. Oh, yeah, but also for the terms of uh, not not specifically within a tournament, but just as uh, off to the side or not being used at that point. Yeah, so Brent, do you think you're going to give the NFL a buy on this one then? I guess I will. I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, and somewhat corrected, or at least more uh, informed. No, I think you were good, actually. I don't think there was a correction involved here. I think you came to us with a question that needed to be asked in order for you to find clarity, which is what uh, self-education is all about. So, Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much, Brent. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a, um, a tennis player the other day tell me that her opponent rode away on a bicycle. Speaking of bi, rode away on a bicycle. Do you know what that means? Um, that means basically they ran off with the victory, right? Well, no, that, that no? it was six love, six love. You know, six zero, six zero uh, is a reference so it, to the two bicycle wheels. So, so it looks like a bicycle when you ride it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'd heard of That's bagel. Awesome. You know, I bageled my sure, opponent six sure. zero, but I never heard of my opponent rode away on a bicycle. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> now that's pretty good. Martha and I, I will so. welcome your questions about everything sports related. She'll answer. The number, <laughs> the number to call is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or send us an email to words at waywardradio.org. Martha, you'll remember that earlier this year I used simping in the slang quiz. Right, simping. It means to actively pursue a woman online mm-hmm. in a kind of fawning fashion. Well, Matt Morgan wrote to ask if the word simping, that's S-I-M-P-I-N-G, originated with the term cyber pimping, which means more or less to act like a Casanova or Mac Daddy online in a way that you might not offline. And so I think that's actually a pretty good question because we don't really know where simping came from. I don't think it is cyber pimping, but Matt, I offer you these ideas. What about it being related to the more simple word simple, S-I-M-P-L-E. A person who is simple, someone who acts like a simpleton, is someone who behaves in kind of a stupid or idiotic manner because simping is not really a term of approval. It's not so You don't want to be accused of simping online. Mm-hmm. Even better, Martha, it might be related maybe to the word simper, meaning to smile coyly or affectedly in a silly, self-conscious way. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But you know what? I'm just not sure that the kind of folks, mainly young men online who use the language simping, would even know that the word simper exists. <laughs> well, you may have a point there. 
Hmm. It's the kind of word you would encounter in Edith Wharton novels and I'm <laughs> not likely to see online. So. Edith Wharton, not World of Warcraft, right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, not, not in WoW, but in EW. <laughs> Well, if you'd like to talk about language, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Or you can always get a quick hit on our discussion forum. That's waywardradio.org slash discussion. Or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Coming up on Away With Words, it's our weekly word quiz. Stay with us. Listening to Away with Words, I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And across from me is the remarkably handsome, that Don Juan, that Casanova, that answer to a maiden's prayer, Greg Pliska. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was was kidding. I was afraid to walk in the studio for what he was going to say about me. Well, you know, that's actually an intro that uh, Don Wilson used once on the Jack Benny show for Jack Benny. So there you go. You have a quiz, something over there? Well, you know, I do. I I actually call this week's puzzle Baby Talk. Um, because, well, as you know, I have this adorable six-month-old baby at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, the answers to this week's quiz are all words or phrases with the word baby in them. Okay. So okay. I'll give you the definition. You give me the word or phrase. Baby on board. Okay. Check that one off. <laughs> <laughs> For example, if the definition I gave you were uh, the group of people about 10 or 15 years older than us, you would say that's the... Baby boom um, generation. Gener- <laughs> ba- yeah, that's right. I'm glad you included the me and the us. Thing. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> 10 or 15. The baby boomers. Five. The geezers. So uh, I tried to find some unusual or lesser known slang terms in addition to some of the more Oh, are they actual ones. slang? Oh, They're slang. They're not necessarily all slang. Oh, I'd okay. like to some, send this quiz out to Grant Barrett. Some will like be you, slang. Thank like are you ready? Yes. All right. Okay, number one. A vacation like the one my wife and I took just before Margot was born. A oh, baby right. moon. Baby moon. Baby moon, absolutely. Uh, also refers to postpartum alone time. Right. And uh, could be accompanied by a push present. That's right. I have entries for both of those mm-hmm. on my website. Yeah, see? Wait, a push <laughs> present? Is that to help in labor or what? No, that's the present that the husband gives the wife after she has the baby. Because she was pushing the baby That's out? Right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Exactly right. yeah, yeah. If you, ha- if you have a cesarean, one. you get nothing. No. <laughs> 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 All right. Here's another one for you. The father of your child with whom you are not currently involved. Like your baby daddy? Your yeah. baby daddy. That's the one right. uh, going on here. Uh, the cut of pork you might have at a barbecue. Baby, baby back, back ribs. ribs. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh. Okay, uh, here is a another one. 1996-97 video that was one of the first internet phenomena and which figured prominently in the Ally McBeal show. Dancing Baby. The oh, Dancing yeah. Baby. Remember that? Oh, my gosh. 3D Dancing Baby, and she had, on the television show, she had, like, Daydreams are that's right. Yeah. Hallucinations, hallucinations of yeah. this thing, which was the, one of the first things to circulate around the internet. Yeah, yeah. Well, boy, that were, brings back memories. If you came to the internet late, maybe. <laughs> well, 
Grant remembers the day when the days of watching yeah, like, coffee pot. There are, in there are pictures on Facebook of, of Grant in that day. It's, <laughs> it's shocking. Actually. I remember Yahoo when it was still at Stanford. I remember Yahoo when it was just a cheer. <laughs> uh, speaking of computers, this is a term for the tendency of computer users to imprint on the first system they learn. <laughs> judging, is that, wait, is that true? <laughs> judging all others against that standard, yeah. Really? You got this from the jargon file? Let me call Eric S. Raymond and find out if he can give me the answer. Yeah. I don't know. I know the phenomenon for sure. Yeah. It's like why some people prefer Windows over uh-huh, Mac or vice uh-huh, versa. Uh-huh. I prefer Speak and Spell. <laughs> <laughs> what would this I be I like called? abacuses. Um, uh, baby steps, baby imprint, baby duck. I don't know. Oh, baby very duck. Good. Is it baby, baby duck? duck syndrome? I wow. did not very know nice. that. That yeah. was a guess. That was a total guess. That's good. I like yeah. that term. That's though. a fun term. That's I like nice. That uh, this will wake you up. Sexy sleepwear consisting of a hip length top of delicate fabric with a matching panty. Baby doll. Baby doll, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I just wanted to say matching panty. (laughs) (laughs) Singular. Yeah, right. How about one more, Greg? One more. You got it. A nickname for the resulting companies if Microsoft had been broken up due to antitrust legislation. The baby softs. The baby micros? The baby Microsofts. (laughs) The baby IBMs. Baby... um... The baby DOS. Now think about what uh, we called the companies when the phone company was broken up. Those were baby, baby bells. bells. So if we were going to be clever, what would we call Microsoft when it was broken up? Baby bulls. No. Uh, keep changing that. So they baby, keep changing that that vowel to another one. Baby bill. Baby bills. The baby bills. No. Baby bills. Yeah. Really? Exactly. Yeah. Really. The L.A. Times article about the case that uh, Word Spy cites as one of the. Uh, one of the sources for that term, the baby bills. Oh, that no explains kidding. it. Baby bills. That's very nice. That was a hard quiz, Greg. We're crying like babies over here. Yeah, that's right. We're just a whaling. <laughs> now that was like taking candy from a baby. Yeah. Ah. Ah. Anyway, it was great fun. Thank you for um, teaching me a whole bunch of new slang. It's yeah. my pleasure. You know that makes Grant happy. If you'd like to talk about grammar, usage, slang, dialect, old sayings, or Quizzes and puzzles, give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. That's one eight seven seven Wayward, or send us an email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello. Um, this is Kathy. I'm calling from Imperial Beach with a question for you. Hello, uh, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Um, I think that we're lacking a word in English. I lived many years in Latin America and I got used to in Central and South America, a word for the for my child's parents-in-law. In other words, there's a word consuegro or consuegra or consuegros for both of them mm-hmm. that you can say instead of having to say my daughter's mother-in-law or my son's father-in-law or whatever. And I think it exists in I know in Italian. I think and I think a number of other languages, and we're missing it in English. Mm-hmm. So this is a word that relates between the two sets of parents, right? It defines a relationship between those two sets of parents? Yes, it's a relationship that we have uh, bet- with the other couple mm-hmm. uh, for the mutual children who have married. Mm-hmm. Right. So let me just clarify. I've got Jane and Joe, and they've married. Jane's parents and Joe's parents are consuegros. 
Exactly. Okay. But, but that there's means nothing that's in English quite right. to indicate that. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we do say in-laws because technically everyone on Joe's side is an in-law with everyone on Jane's side and vice versa. No matter what, whether they're cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, or whatever, they're, they're in-laws. Right. That's true, but it's then not you that can say, special relationship between the parents of the two couples. Right, right. Because a lot of times those sets of parents become bonded. They find out well, that yeah. the same things that brought their <laughs> children together yeah. um, make them appealing to each other as friends, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. and Kathy, I hear in your voice um, a lot of affection when you say that word. Yes, yes. And um, so I miss... Uh, being able to refer to them that way. I have to say, I have to go through this whole routine of, mm-hmm. of if I want to refer to my uh, son's mother-in-law, <laughs> I have to say all of that, mm-hmm. instead of just saying my consuegro, my co-parent. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I don't know if how many other languages. So yeah. should we invent a word and start incorporating it into our language? <laughs> English has never been really good with... Uh the familiar terms. I don't know what that says about Anglo-Saxon culture, but they're just not abundant. And if they're there, they're not really clear or mm-hmm. very precise. We could, but English also, though, does borrow from other languages. There's no reason we couldn't just take the Spanish term and run away with it. Well, that's true. Especially here in San Diego area. <laughs> well, certainly yeah. all around the country, the yeah. the kind of white noise level of understanding of Spanish, that is to say the Spanish that people know but uh-huh. don't really quite know they know across the United States, mm-hmm. is actually pretty good. It's about 50 to 100 words depending on, on your age, your education background, and where uh-huh. you live. So that's pretty good. It's, it's enough that people recognize a Spanish word when they hear it or see it, even if they don't know what it means. Uh-huh. So I think you could get away with that. I could get away with starting to use it. I think this is a terrific idea. I've been having word envy just li- listening to you talk about this, just hearing the warmth in your voice when you talk about it. I, th- I think it's great. I think we should start using consuegro. Okay. We, okay. We've decided. We've All right. <laughs> we started an incorporation. Thank you. All right. All right. Good. Ciao. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. Well, let us know what you think about consuegros. Give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Or send us an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Joe Hunt in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hi, Joe. Joe. What's going on in Indy? Well, uh, I have a phrase that uh, I've never understood that my mother used to say somewhat frequently. uh, And the the phrase is odder than Dick's hat band. And that's O-D-D-E-R. Otter. Otter uh, than Dick's hat band. And how would she use this? As a general descriptive. She uh, might use it to uh, describe a situation that's, that happened, and she would say, well, that was otter than Dick's hat band. So something crazy and unbelievable would happen, right? Yes, right. And mm-hmm. she'd say, uh, or for, for behavior, if uh, saw someone uh, you know, going down the street skipping, you might say, well, he's odder than Dick's hat band. Uh-huh. Did you ever question your mother as to nah, where she got know, it? We, we ignored her most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Poor woman. Aww. I know. And did she ever say any other form of that? Because there are many other forms of this contrary as Dick's hat band or twisted as Dick's hat band. And I've also heard tight as Dick's hat band, in that case meaning drunk. And queer, as queer as Dick's hat band. Yes. Hmm. 
That's the earliest, actually, Grant, the earliest instance I've seen of this Dick's Hat Band ideas is uh, in a dictionary from 1796 where somebody talks about the expression, I'm queer as Dick's Hat Band, and it means I'm kind of out of sorts. I don't know yes. what ails me. As you as you can hear here, Joe, the, the thing is this: you, your mother was not alone. This is a widespread expression, and it does date back uh, several hundred years. The book that Martha's talking about is probably Francis Gross's uh, Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, right? right? Right. Which is a well-known work of slang. It's one of the earliest works that we know of. I see. Yeah, it's it's also a book that sort of makes you want to take a shower after you read it. There are a lot of really vulgar things in it. I mean, mm-hmm. you want to take a shower with a squeegee and lye soap for sure. But he mentions the phrase queer as Dick's hat man. And the truth is nobody knows who Dick was. And I don't. He didn't live in our family. <laughs> <laughs> so what we can tell you is this is a big junk, Joe. This is, as we call it, uh, an origin unknown story. We don't know who Dick was. We do know the expression is widespread both in the U.K. and in the United States. It it goes back several hundred years in, in both places. And um, there seems to be no regional component to it, meaning it's not more common in one part of the country than another. All right. Well, Joe, I hope we've helped just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, All thanks right, a lot well, for calling, Thank Joe. you so much. Best of luck. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Grant, he didn't seem sold on that expression. I love it, Otter and Dick's hat band. It yeah. might just be too odd, that expression. It's it's kind of opaque. Yeah, but that's what I like about it. Oh, okay. I'm going to start using it. Well, if you've got a question that's been bugging you about something that somebody used to say, well, that's kind of vague, but you know what I mean. The number <laughs> to call is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. That's one eight seven seven wayward and don't forget, you can always email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Oh, this is Holly Somrak, and I'm calling from Oregon. Well, what are you calling us about? Oh, well, because of the holidays, we were, um, there's a term I've heard last 25 years, and I just got curious about it. We were carving our Thanksgiving turkey, and and I asked who would like the Pope's nose, you know, the the little tail end of the turkey body. <laughs> I guess it's the tail, but uh-huh. uh, the, the little rear end, and no one knows where that term came from, and I don't either. It's just kind of strange. So I thought, I wonder if you folks know. The Pope's nose. The Pope's nose. Did everyone know, know what you meant when you said that? Well, my husband knew what it was because he's Catholic, and I guess he'd heard it before, but I don't, we don't know where it came from, and I heard it from a nun who who first told me when I was up in Alaska, and I was kind of surprised that she used that term. I didn't know if it was <laughs> disrespectful or what. I'm really curious. Yeah, it's a little bit irreverent, isn't it? Well, it sounded like it. So I wasn't going to use it, but if the nun did, then I guess I can. Yeah, if the nun called the turkey's rump a pope's nose, why not? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I, I didn't do any research. I thought I'd just ask you folks first. Well, it's better than the scientific name for this part, which is Europygium. Ooh. Good thing you didn't ask anybody if they wanted a bite of Europygium. But, yes, it, it. I mean, that little thing does look like a nose, right? Well, it's just a fleshy, lobey thing. So, but it's yeah. a, a big kind of pimply nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and very succulent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Succulent, yes. Because it's very fatty down there, right? Yeah. Uh-huh, and... and I don't know if anyone has actually eaten it. We usually put it with the giblets and top it up for the dogs or something. But I don't know if, you know. 
Well, now, I don't eat turkey, but I've heard it's really delicious. Actually, okay. back in my turkey eating days, I had some, and it was and it was great. But you're right; it does sound a little irreverent. But there's this strong tradition in Europe of um, naming foods in a kind of irreverent way that makes fun of the clergy. I once wrote a book called Lady Fingers and Nuns Tummies. Because, really? Yes, because in Portugal there's a sweet eggy dessert that translates as nuns' tummies, and there's some even naughtier nun names for French pastries, but oh. I won't go there. But oh, how interesting! Yeah, yeah. So you know, we we like to play with our food, and um, Pope's nose is just a funny name that uh, because of its resemblance to a nose. Oh, okay. Hmm. So it was European based. Yes, yes, and, and yes. In, in this country, often you'll hear people refer to it as the Parsons nose. Oh, depending upon which uh, religious affiliation you are. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay. And so it's just a, a folk term, kind of a comical folk term that derived. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to at least the uh, late 18th century. And um, I believe okay. James Joyce mentions it in one of his books. We appreciate your calling and, and sending us down this path. Oh, thank you. It's been real enlightening. So which, right, which term are you going to use? Ah, uh, the Europygium. Pygium. 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 Okay. Yeah. I yeah. have to write this phonetically. Yeah, Europygium. <laughs> use that next Thanksgiving and see what everybody says. I think I will. That's really fun. Okay. Well, thank well, you. Thanks a lot for calling. All right. Namaste. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. One eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three is the number to call to talk about turkey butts or anything else. Or you can email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. There was an essay in the New York Times recently that I loved. It was by Laura Miller, and it was called The Well-Tended Bookshelf. Did you see this, Grant? She was talking about culling books from her library. Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, start. Go ahead. Um, No, you go first. (laughs) Okay. Well, she was talking about how she chooses books to take out of her library or not to make room. But there was one part I really identified with, and I want to share some of it. It's right at the very end. She says, As actuarial tables advance, the number of books you've got time to read diminishes. Dr. Johnson once said of second marriages that they represent the hope of triumph over experience. So, too, do my bookshelves. I've turned out to be less rational about this than I thought and have made my library into a charm against mortality. As long as I have a few unread books beckoning to me from across the room, I tell myself I can always find a little more time. And Grant, I really identified with that. That's how I feel about so many of the books in my office. I went in there and I took a look and I thought, you know, there's so many of these that I'm never going to read. But if I keep them on the shelves, maybe I'll live long enough to. Did she expressly use the phrase reading mortality? Because that's the phrase that I use. I think I picked it up from a, an article in the Boston Globe a few years ago. Oh, really? No, the idea I don't think that she did. It's the realization that comes upon you when you realize that you will never you will never, absolutely, it's impossible for you to finish all the books that you want to read. Oh, that's an actual term? I didn't know that. Yeah, you'd have yeah. to be, I, I would have to be like 180 to finish all the books I want yeah, to read. Yeah, with a MacArthur, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, without a day job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time in the world. Sure. Book Lovers Unite, give us a call on the phone, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or email us at words at waywardradio.org. Next up... 
How good are you at guessing the meaning of terms you've never heard before? Oh yeah? Find out when Away With Words continues. Support for Away With Words comes from WordSmart, the vocabulary building software. Improving your vocabulary, reading comprehension, and critical thinking skills will increase your chances for success. Learn more online at wordsmart.tv. You're listening to Away With Words. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. It's time for our weekly slang challenge where we try to stump a member of the National Puzzlers League. Today's contestant is Brian Wecht from New York City. Hello, Brian. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you two? Doing oh, super duper. Brian, you're a co-resident with me in New York City. Uh, well, actually, I am in uh, New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. Uh, uh, that's so far away. Never mind. What do you do there? I'm a postdoc right now uh, at a research institution called the Institute for Advanced Study. Oh, really? Yeah, it's in Princeton. Can you sum up your dissertation in language I can understand? Well, I work on uh, string theory and supersymmetry. String theory and supersymmetry? Kind of mathematical uh, particle physics sort of stuff. Okay, so you're going to ace this slang quiz, right? Well, that... uh, Let's hope those two are correlated. I'm, I'm sure there's a correlation. Do you have a favorite <laughs> slang term you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I do. Um, I love the word pie hole. <laughs> As, As in, in shut your... Shut your pie hole. <laughs> I like it, too. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Shut your pie hole. It's just very crass and rude. And uh, it it's so the... vulgar. And, uh, yeah, it appeals yeah. to the 10-year-old in me. I was going to say, yeah, you and Grant are going to get along great. Okay, <laughs> pie hole meaning mouth. All right, Brian. All well, right. let's see how you do with the quiz, all right? Okay, sure. Here are the rules. I'm going to give you a sentence with a blank in it. Your job is to fill that blank with one of the two answers, all right? Mm-hmm. Only one of them is correct. If you get stumped or stuck, ask Martha for help. Okay, great. All right. Okay, here we go. No, it won't be done on time. Yes, I put that in my report. The problem is that whenever I report problems to my boss and she reports them to her boss and he reports to the CEO, the information is blanked all the way down the line. So, Brian, what happens to the information? Is it A, beagle-chased, B-E-A-G-L-E-C-H-A-S-E-D, beagle-chased, or green-shifted, G-R-E-E-N-S-H-I-F-T-E-D? Ooh. Well, I have to say, as a as a physicist, uh, I love the term green shifted because uh, that reminds me of the the Doppler effect, right? Where mm-hmm. as you move uh, towards or away from a source, uh, you know the the frequency of a of a pitch or of a of a of the light or whatever it is changes. So right. I can see as the information is propagating away from the original source, it's actually changing its color. Mm-hmm. Uh, the redshift. Yeah, so t- traditionally you'd say red shift or blue shift. Ah, uh, right, direction. yeah. Um, so uh, I think purely to be true to my roots, I'm going to have to go with, uh, with green shift. It also has a nice technical feel to it. Yes, and that is correct. And oh, actually right. your explanation, your, your story about the red shift and the, and the Doppler effect, that is the origin of green shifting. The further information goes from the source, the more positive it becomes. Brian, I am so impressed. Cool. Well, uh, I think you picked the one slang term that actually coincides with what I know. So. <laughs> I did not know that you were a physicist. I did not know. But, um, but good. I'm glad that you got it right. Green shifting is a business jargon. It's been around a couple of years. I don't know how popular it is, but I think it's a good term because it's so true. How often have you, um, you know, 
found your boss's boss in the hallway and your boss's boss is like, I hear everything's going great. And you're like, um, yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> we, we need more people. <laughs> we need more time. It just doesn't make it quite up the chain because, you know. Because it's green shifted. Wow. Yeah. All right. See how you do on this next one, Brian? Okay, great. This building project is blank. We've got the blueprints, the contractors, and the land. All we need now is approval to spend the money. So is the building project A, shovel-ready, or B, kiln-fired? K-I-L-N-fired. K-I-L-N. Hmm, shovel-ready or kiln-fired? Uh, well, shovel-ready, that is, uh, I mean, that's, it's like we're almost there, right? We're just ready to, to dig the first, uh, uh, get the first shovel in and, uh, and get it ready to go. Sounds nice and building-specific. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to go with that one. Mm-hmm. I like it. Two for two. You're rocking, Brian. Brian. Shovel Ready came to my attention this year because Barack Obama is fond of using it. It's a, is he it's really? A, yeah, it's a classic bit of jargon that kind of spans several industries. Government people like to use it. Governments are just filled with agencies that have plans that are only waiting for money or approval. And those plans are called Shovel Ready. They're just exactly as you said. They're waiting for the first shovel of dirt to be. And it, they say it regardless of whether it's for a building project or whatever. This just means. We're oh yeah, they, ready I to have go. actually seen Shovel Ready used for something other than a building project. But in my sentence, I decided to keep it on the building so that the, there are clues embedded there. Well, I always yeah. try to be Shovel Ready around Grant, but it has a totally different meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the horses that go around Central Park that they have the canvas bag behind them to catch right. the... Oh, Just never in mind. Case. Just in case. Usually people have to wait about 40 more years for that. But. <laughs> oh, Brian, you're so impressive. All that postgraduate training has really paid off. Thanks. I'm glad it's uh, useful for something. Yeah. Well, thanks for playing. Thank thanks you, Brian. I had a great time. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Well, if you thanks. have a question about words or language or grammar or slang, give us a call. The number is one 929 that's one eight seven seven wayward or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Amy calling from Powder Springs, Georgia. Hi, Powder Amy. Springs. Where is yeah, Powder that, Springs? It's uh, one of the western suburbs of Atlanta. Oh, okay. All right. Well, what are you calling about? I have a little anecdote to tell you, and I was hoping you two could tell me if you've ever heard anything like this before or if it's just... An odd family thing. Oh, great. Okay. Bring Let's it on. It. Um, I grew up in a very large uh, baby boomer family. There's 11 of us, and I'm number seven. And as you can imagine, with that many kids, there were often times when there was a lot of arguing or even, God forbid, fighting. Um, when that kind of thing happened, either mom or dad would shout out, do you think the rain will hurt the rhubarb? then one of us would have to answer, not if it's in cans. And that, of course, would throw us off the argument, and we wouldn't be arguing anymore. So it would be a good way to derail all the kids from arguing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that sounds really silly, but I'm wondering... I hear somebody laughing right. in the background. Somebody's really that's, enjoying that. That's my husband in the background laughing, because he thinks the whole <laughs> thing is ridiculous. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We all have our... So this is family trips ages ago. Yes. Yes, long time ago. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny that that is a completely in line with the way that I've seen it used. And and it's not only your family. If I hope that's a relief to you or at least interesting. Um, and to your husband. It's, uh-huh. it's, it is classically two things. It's a non sequitur to use when you want to change the subject from something uncomfortable. And uh-huh. it's also 
used, you'll find this in newspapers all the time from the 30s and 40s, used as an example of kind of aimless, pointless speech, kind of like, how about them Yanks or hot enough for you, you know? And uh-huh. Nice weather so, we're having. Do you think the rain will hurt the rhubarb? <laughs> I, I found examples of this as far back as 1939. And, really? Yes, absolutely. And you'll find again and again that when it's mentioned, people will say – people will use it exactly kind of the context you're talking about to to represent somebody who doesn't have anything better to say or somebody who needs to change the subject fast. See, that's amazing to me. I thought that was just totally a family thing. No. And, Amy, I've heard other versions of it too, like, do you think the rain will hit the rhubarb? Only if we don't oil it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of as ridiculous as not if it's in cans. I do have I to like say though, I do have to say that the not if it's in cans part I've never seen before, oh. and I don't oh, really? it, that that could be unique to your family. I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere else. Oh well, how about that? We're special. Well, every family is special. Every you family special. has its own in-house language, its own vocabulary. That's amazing because I had no idea that that would be anything anybody else in the universe would use. Love it. Love it. It's, it. Well, it's not that common if that's, if that's any comfort to you. But it should be. We could have world peace if we just stopped conflicts by saying, do you think the rain will hurt the rhubarb? <laughs> <laughs> it that's would gonna, work. I'm that's what Hillary you. Clinton's going to do. That's right. <laughs> it would work. <laughs> I can just picture Hillary. <laughs> She's like, well, yeah, we could talk about that, but do you think the rain will hit the, hurt the rhubarb? Well, I'm glad I gave you all a chuckle. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. You take care of yourself there in Powder Springs, all right? Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> I wonder if other people have expressions that they use to intervene in arguments, too. We'd love to hear them. Call us at 1 877 929 9673 or email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Mike Ekanaka. Where are you calling from? Uh, calling from, actually, I'm in Glendora, but I live down in Irvine, California. Ah, well, welcome to the show. What can we do for you? Well, I have a, a, an interesting thing, I guess, that came up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the uh, local paper in Orange County is the Orange County Register, and there was an article in there about a company called Hearst who was going to manufacture some specialty cars, and they referred to them as being souped up, and it was spelled S-U-P-E-D, up. Now, I grew up in L.A. in the 60s, and, and when first was just kind of getting started doing drag racing parts, and there were a lot of souped-up cars in those days, and I always saw it spelled S-O-U-P-E-D, like, like the, uh, the liquid uh, condiment or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I had never thought about that spelling until I saw this article. Mm-hmm. So for all this time, I've been either wrong or just assuming that, that I knew how it was supposed to be spelled. Uh-huh. So that article rocked your world and you had to call. A little bit. It, it, it gave me pause. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've seen the S-U-P-E spelling, uh, and I know that it's fairly common out there, um, but it's not the correct spelling. The correct spelling is S-O-U-P. It is. Even if it's in a newspaper. I had done a little bit of... Digging around and and I found some things on uh, on the web about S U P E D, uh, perhaps have been referred to a uh, uh, a supercharger and as a shortened version of that. And mm-hmm. I think most of the people participating in that particular site discounted that, and they well, they said it may have harkened back to, um, I guess there was a common practice in hor- in in the early days of horse racing to. Uh, inject performance-enhancing drugs into animals instead of people. And, uh, and that was called soup, and, and they think it may have sprung from that source. 
soup was and still is sometimes used to refer to any kind of liquid or even a paste, all right? So people refer to gasoline as soup or they'll refer to the uh, um, seawater as soup. They'll refer to uh, uh, the chemicals for developing film as soup. Uh, anything can be a soup, okay? But a lot of times the soup is more specifically used to, to mean a drug or a chemical or something that's used to treat something else. You can see that in the, the photography use of it and in the use you talked about where uh, horses might have been doped with drugs in order to make mm-hmm. them perform, perform okay. better. And you can find very specific in- instances of this being mentioned in, in periodicals from the 1920s and 1930s. That's a really strong theory that, that is, that's a place where um, the, the transfer of horse racing to car racing, you can see how the jargon might easily be borrowed from one sport into the other, right? Right. But there are some difficulties here. Um, you'll also find soup being used to refer to nitroglycerin. Mm-hmm. And you'll actually ref- find places where people are talking about people being souped up on nitroglycerin. That is, they'd taken nitroglycerin as a drug. You know, it's good for your heart, for example, under right. certain conditions and certain quantities. And nitroglycerin was used uh, to blow safes. And safe crackers called it soup, and they called blowing the safe souping the safe. So we've also got this other use where we're specifically talking about a chemical that is powerful and explosive. And you could see how nitroglycerin, you might say, well, I've modded my car to such a degree that it's like it's running on nitroglycerin instead of gasoline, right? Right. All right. So, and then we go to the final part, the, the one that you mentioned, and I think it's, I think it might be incorrect to dismiss the supercharged theory out of hand. You can find uses of it in the 1930s, and we, we're talking about the beginning of the heyday of high-performance automobiles and machinery, right? You will right. find specifically people talking about a supercharger and saying that it's a gadget that soups up a motor, in those words. With a U... Uh- or not. So, no, that's, that's the very interesting thing. The supercharger, S-U-P-E-R, uh, soups up the motor, S-O-U-P. So, so it's ah, really, really interesting. There might be some lending there, but, but unequivocally the spelling is S-O-U-P. The origin, of course, is in doubt. Anyway, so we've gone far afield here, Mike, but I hope we've offered you some information that you can take back to your pals. Well, that is interesting, and thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay. I hope we didn't give you soup in a basket. No, this was, it was very interesting, and I appreciate it. Okay, thank we've you given much. you soup in a bowl. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Well, if you have a question about language, call us. The number is 1-877-929-9673, or you can always email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Mary from St. Cloud, Minnesota. Hi, Mary. Hello, Mary. What's going on? I have a a problem here I'm hoping you can help me with. Um, I have a little disagreement with my significant other, who, by the way, is truly the smartest man I know. Our our problem is with the term Indian summer. I thought Indian summer meant when in the fall, you know, it's, the, you know, we go through the summer, and then it starts to cool off, and then we have a spell, and it probably freezes, and then we have a warm spell. And I thought the term Indian summer came from, oh, back in the old days when they, uh, the, the, that that was at a time when Indians would have to do their last harvest before the winter. Now, my significant other, who's very smart, said that he thought it came from a sort of the same take as the term Indian giver, hmm. uh, which, of course, is 
you know, not appropriate anymore, but mm-hmm. the, in that, you know, we thought we were getting warm weather, and then, you know, like we have the fall, we think, then it goes to a nice patch, and then boom, then we're in the bad part of winter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fake out. Oh, right, yeah, I see. Yeah. I, see. I, was, I was wondering how that could be related, but I see now. Yeah. Well, um, you're right that Indian giver is considered offensive now, um, and I don't think it has anything to do with Indian summer, really, although the truth is, Mary, there are so many theories about the term Indian summer. It's amazing. How many theories are there, Grant? A million, a million. Yeah, just just so many. And the one that keeps getting floated around that seems the most logical is probably something about the colonists coming from England where they used a different term for that period of time, either St. Martin summer. Sometimes they called it goose summer because that was the time of year when geese were uh, eaten at feasts, that kind of thing. but the the one that makes the most sense is simply that they had uh, different names there and then came to this country and associated that period of time with the one of the most salient characteristics of the New World, that is the presence of Indians there. But the truth is that we just don't know. Okay. Well, I like that explanation. Mary, I will give you one recommendation, which is a book called Beneath the Second Sun. S-U-N. It's by Adam Sweeting, who I think is a professor of humanities at Boston University. And it's just a whole book about Indian summer. And it's a beautiful meditation on that period of the year. And it's got all kinds of references to literature and history and science. And it's just a gorgeous little book that makes you really appreciate that beautiful, beautiful time of year. Oh, that sounds lovely, because it is a beautiful time. Yeah, it is. It is. And and I'm sorry that it's gotten associated with the term, with the offensive term, Indian giver. You know, I'm almost right. hesitant to say it, although I don't, I'm not sure that there's a connection there. Well, I've never heard is. anyone else make that connection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, I, I don't believe that there's a connection there to Indian summer, the, the taking back of something once given. I, I don't believe it. Yeah, it's, I, I don't either. This is the first possible. that I've ever heard of it. It's possible he was pulling my leg. Ah, oh well. Your that's significant thing. other? Only to get them even, I suppose. But, <laughs> but he, he might have been. Well, you did say he was the smartest guy in the world besides Grant. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, Mary, thanks for an interesting question. Well, thank you so much for your help. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our show for this week. If you didn't get on the air today, you can still leave us a message anytime. The number's 1-877-929-9673. Or you can email your questions to words at waywardradio.org. Or join the conversation with fellow word lovers at our online forum. The address is waywardradio.org slash discussion. Stephanie Levine is our senior producer. Our technical director and editor is Tim Felton. Tim also engineered our theme music. Kurt Conan produced it. We've had production help this week from Michael Bagdasian. From the Argo Network in New York City, I'm Grant Barrett. And from Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. Peace out. Shalom. You say neither, and I say neither.